The Angry Tenor. <laughs> Hello, I'm your host, John Sayers, and I am the Angry Tenor. Just a reminder, the Angry Tenor goes live every Monday evening at 7 p.m. That's every Monday evening, 7 p.m., new episodes of the Angry Tenor. Today we're going to have a look at a couple of pieces from my book, Dateline Opera Music Theater. We're going to look at a review I wrote in 1999 of the Three Penny Opera, a very, very significant production. And then we're going to look at a purported musical called Paul Robeson, which looks at the life of Paul Robeson on the 100th anniversary of his birth. And then finally, we're going to review a film. The film comes from 1999 called Hillary and Jackie. It is a concerto of the soul, the story of two women, Jacqueline Dupre, the cellist, and her sister, Hillary. It is a movie that if you have not seen it, you must see it. If you have seen it, you need to see it again. Berlin, 1929. Kurt Weill, fresh from the greatest success of his young career with the Three Penny Opera, found himself banned by the rising tide of National Socialism for his highly critical opera, The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahagone. The influence of the Nazis was beginning to take its toll on artistic expression in Germany. As a result, Weill, and his librettist Bertolt Brecht fled Nazi Germany for the United States. Weil remained in the States and established a reputation as a composer, while Brecht returned to Berlin after World War II, where he died in 1956, already recognized as one of Germany's greatest playwrights. Weil had died six years earlier in New York. The Three Penny Opera is recognized today as their greatest collaboration. Based on the Beggar's Opera by the Englishman John Gay, Three Penny Opera has become a standard in the fight of the have-nots against the haves. Soon after its premiere in Berlin in 1928, it was recognized as the greatest success of a German musical in the 20th century. Of course, 1928 might have been a little early to make that assessment, but Three Penny Opera has certainly held its own for the past 70 years. The brilliance of the piece makes it all the more disappointing that it is not performed more often. Yes, 
It demands a certain understanding of a style that is at once out of date by modern theater standards and also foreign to American audiences. The style of Brecht and Weil is musically more cabaret than musical theater, more social theater than opera. Based on the Beggar's Opera, Brecht moved much of the substance and tendency of the original into the 20th century, making more of a statement about the rising bourgeoisie and the seeds of capitalism. The Visual and Performing Arts Department of Broward Community College can be proud of the production of this work now playing at the University Theater on the Davy campus. The production not only caught the note and word of Three Penny Opera, but also its spirit. No, this was not a perfect representation of this work, but it came awfully close. Many of the songs were interpreted in such a way as to give the feeling the singers had done their homework. Most impressive in this regard was Sally Clune as Lucy Brown, the daughter of the corrupt police chief. She sang Barbara's song with an intensity, style, and emotional outpouring that moved the audience to a tremendous outburst. Her voice was strong and secure, radiant in a classical musical style, which she used to bend, weave, and mold her story. The following jealousy duet with Polly was delightful, funny, and precise in its movement and execution. As Polly, Amy Lauren was the epitome of a Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht character. A beautiful young actress, Lauren needs only to learn how to move between her belting range and that fearsome upper register. Her characterization of Polly was right on the mark. She presented the ballad of Pirate Jenny in a show-stopping manner. When I closed my eyes, I could almost imagine it was Lottie Lenya on stage. If only that dreaded upper register hadn't gotten in the way. As Mac the Knife, Charlie Harris displayed the strongest voice of the cast. He did a good job, but his acting was somewhat wooden and stiff. His musical interpretation could have used a little more styling. Kirsten Duffer was an absolute scream as Mrs. Peachum. Kiri Valdez was a sexy, dark, and dangerous Jenny Oliver, the whore who betrays Mac the Knife. Scott Boris served as a narrator and gave an unstylish, rather swooping account of Three Penny's most famous song, Mac the Knife, fortunately in no way reminiscent of Bobby Darren. Other members of the cast, far too numerous to mention, were solid in their individual roles. If you're looking for a different kind of theater, this is for you. You will enjoy it thoroughly. The sky was red, thunder rumbling overhead. Bad King George couldn't sleep in his bed, and on that stormy morn, old Uncle Sam was born. I remember the first time I heard Paul Robeson's voice. It was thrilling. The deep rolling bass was captivating 
and you believed, you listened. Whether speaking or singing, he never received any formal training. It was a voice that captured your soul. Paul Robeson was more than just a performer. He was an athlete, first All-American footballer at Rutgers, received 15 varsity letters in four sports. He was a lawyer, graduated from Columbia Law School, but couldn't stand the way he was treated as a second-class lawyer by his law firm, where he was used only for clients who wanted to talk football. He was a scholar. Lettering in four sports, Robeson was valedictorian of his senior class. His educational roots continued into his later years as his concerts often became a learning experience for his audiences. Thus it was with great expectation when I awaited the Vinette Carroll Theater production of Philip Hayes Dean's Paul Robeson in celebration of the 100th anniversary of his birth. And it was a great disappointment when I finally saw it last Sunday. Dean's treatment of Paul Robeson's life is trivial and naive. It totally missed the point of his life and tried to portray him as just a champion of Negro rights. Nothing could be further from the truth. Despite the problems he faced being a black man in America in the early part of this century, Paul Robeson fought for the rights of the oppressed and the disadvantaged of every race and creed. Dean's play doesn't even come close to presenting the rich, intelligent, and compassionate personality of this man. It doesn't even touch on the impact his performance in the theater and on concert stages had on audiences around the world. And a mighty fine idea. Adopted unanimously in Congress, July 4, 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Yes, sir. That's right. The very words. That sure does sound mighty fine. Much of the early part of this musical was spent with minor parts of Robeson's life. A whole musical number, Ring That Bell, is built around his saying goodbye to the train station manager. Little is made of his great Broadway successes, Eugene O'Neill's All God's Chillin' Got Wings and The Emperor Jones, were the shows that made him a star during the Negro Renaissance of the 20s and 30s. Much is made of his performance in Showboat in England, but little of his performances on Broadway in 1943 as Othello, opposite Uta Hagen and Jose Ferrer, the longest-running Shakespeare play ever on Broadway. His film credits are almost totally ignored, Body and Soul and Song of Freedom. But time is taken to denounce, rightfully so, Hollywood's treatment of black actors. The essence of Robeson does not appear in this production. It was his concert career that took him around the world and into the hearts of so many people, and that allowed him to bring his message against racism and discrimination to people of many nations and many races. This was largely ignored by Dean. 
His bout with the American government, which had accused him of being a communist for supporting several leftist causes, cost him his passport, and he was forced to live in Europe, in East Berlin, Moscow, and London, for most of the 1950s. This part of his life, and his return to the concert stage after his passport was restored in 1958, was summarized in a short courtroom scene that may have been the most dramatic scene in the entire production, though it fell far short in addressing the impact of these events. The cast did what they could with the skimpy, poorly thought out material. Tony Thompson, who doubles as the business manager for the theater, was too light-hearted to effectively portray the soul of Robeson. He was given little opportunity to sing, but when he did, it lacked the passion of Robeson. Besides his numbers with the ensemble, Robeson sang only a snippet toward the end from Earl Robinson's Ballad for Americans, which Robeson recorded in 1939. Thompson is a good performer, bright and eloquent, and his personality came across the footlights. Sadly, it was Paul Robeson's personality we wanted to see. Georgette Smith, who was part of the ensemble and doubled as Robeson's wife, Essie, displayed an interesting voice with good belting quality in the lower and middle ranges. There was some delightful mezzavoce work in her scenes with Thompson, but she spent most of her time on stage as a member of the ensemble and had little other opportunity to display her talents. The band, which arrived 30 minutes late, was excellent. The group is directed by Melvin Dawson, who also sang all the lead vocals. It totally escaped me why the lead vocals were sung from the pit instead of on the stage. Little biographical information was given in the program, except about Paul Robeson. The composer was not named, but most of the music had little to do with the music of Paul Robeson, so perhaps it is just as well. The small audience seemed to be in the spirit of the performance, but the material trivialized a great man. It's a shame a theater like the Vignette Carol could not put together a more fitting tribute to Paul Robeson on the centennial anniversary of his birth. This is a film review, Concerto of the Soul, Hillary and Jackie. The cello is often referred to as the instrument that most resembles the human voice. In award-winning documentarian Arnold Tucker's first feature film, Hillary and Jackie, the voice of the cello plays an important role in the story's development. Like the haunting melody of Elgar's cello concerto in E minor, the story of Jacqueline Dupre and her relationship with her sister Hillary is a tale of human frailty woven together like a well-crafted concerto. Dupre's own recording of the Elgar concerto accompanies and underscores most of the film. The story of one of the greatest cello prodigies to appear in the 20th century is not a biographical film in the normal sense. Rather, 
It is composed much like a concerto in three movements, each with a coda, each containing variations on a statement from a previous movement. This method permits access to certain important parts of the story from different viewpoints. The first movement explores the childhood of the two girls growing up in England. A musical family, their mother was a conductor, Hilary was at first considered to have the greatest prodigy potential as a flutist. But after a nasty series of lessons with a teacher at the Royal Academy of Music, she opted for a married life in the country, raising her two children. Jackie, on the other hand, developed into a fine cello prodigy and immediately embarked on a promising career, marrying conductor Daniel Barenboim along the way. In 1973, at the age of 28, she was forced to give up her concert career because of the onset of multiple sclerosis. She died of MS at the age of 42 in 1987. The second movement looks at the adult lives of Hillary and Jackie from Hillary's point of view, with most of the scenes taking place at Hillary's country home. The third movement looks at Jackie's exhausting concert tours, at first alone and later with Barenboim. The erratic behavior that begins to appear at this time is probably caused in part by the strain of touring and partly by the onset of MS. The outcome of Jackie's bout with MS is clear and well known from the beginning, but seeing the portrayal of the effects of MS is devastating, even knowing the ending before the beginning will not stop the flow of tears. This is a powerful movie about a talented, intense, complicated woman and her attempt to reach out to her sister in her time of need. Emily Watson, an Oscar-nominated actress for Breaking the Waves, gives an award-winning portrayal of Jacqueline Dupre. The role of Jackie is a career-making role for Watson that will impact her work for the rest of her career. Hers was a virtuoso performance from beginning to end. Even the cello faking and the unusual movement that was Dupre's trademark were exquisitely done. Brava. Rachel Griffiths played Hillary with a touch of reserve. Her play opposite Watson was in serene counterpoint to the flamboyancy of Jackie. A solid rock, Griffiths gave Hillary the importance of an obligato to a great melody. David Morrissey, as Hillary's husband, Kiffer Finchie, was humorous and charming, expertly expressing the difficulty of existing between the two sisters. Celia Emery was warm, affectionate, and motherly as the sister's mother and first music teacher. Daniel Barenboim was affectionately played by James Frayne. One of the coolest scenes in the movie was the recording session of a Beethoven trio with Dupre that broke into an impromptu jazz session, perhaps one of their last happy times together. Director Tucker has wielded a magic spell around the sad circumstances of Dupre's life. His film is a fair treatment, if not a direct biography, of the faded cellist and her relationship with her sister. Tucker has created an interesting treatment of telling the lives of two people from each of their viewpoints, which makes the repeated scenes, because they are from different views, interesting and insightful. This movie may not do well at the box office because of the classical music nature of the storyline, 
But classical music is the medium upon which these two lives are laid. It is a story of two women, their lives, their loves, and their tragedies. It is a movie not to be missed. It is shocking. It is intense. And it will make you cry. That's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. The preceding three reviews were from my book, Dateline, Opera, Music, Theater, which contains reviews, articles, essays, opinion pieces from the time that I was managing editor of the East Sider, an arts and entertainment paper for South Florida. The East Sider no longer exists. All of these were written in the late 1990s. I would like to receive comments, so if you have a comment on this show or any other show, please send it to heldentenore at att.net. That's heldentenore at att.net. And just a program reminder, The Angry Tenor is live every Monday evening at 7 p.m. So, I'm John Sayers, and I am The Angry Tenor. Yeah.